0: I remember vividly washing the dishes one night and looking out my uh, kitchen window and seeing these deer looking back at me. And I know that's not a, an amazing thing for a Coloradan to hear, but it was, you know, just lovely experience. And I was saying to my "Where's my camera?" And she's going, "Well, don't be stupid. You don't have a camera." And <laughs> just, it was just at that moment I kind of realised I, I, I wanted not just to appreciate this, but to capture it for myself. Now and. I, and I'm a very competitive photographer at heart as well, I'll be honest. And if you want to do well in clubs, you can't just be a specialist. You have to apply yourself across multiple genres. I think composition is something that's just so difficult to teach. And actually through example is, is often the way that you get that point across. The other thing I would really counsel people on if they're willing to learn is just put yourself under the scrutiny of a club club judge and you'll very quickly get a, Get a lesson in in where things are going wrong.
1: Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed, your wildlife photography and outdoor adventure podcast. This week, your hosts are Michael Morrow, Ron Hayes, and myself, Mark Raycroft. How are you doing, guys? I'm hot.
2: It is finally summer. Overnight?
3: Wisconsin. Overnight. Yep.
2: Yeah, it did. It switched.
3: Yeah, we go from 60s or 50s this past weekend to this Friday. It's supposed to be in the 90s. So I, I don't know. I think that happens everywhere. Everybody just, you know, talks a lot about it when you're living through it. But, but it is kind of unusual to be so cold or so cool all the yeah. way into the end of June. Way overdue.
2: Right?
1: We, I, we hope to get a, a couple of months of summer-like weather.
2: I'm about one week of 90-degree temperatures away from wishing it would start snowing again. <laughs> That's kind of how I feel about the whole thing.
1: True at heart, right? I mean, we're all that way. <laughs> Autumn is my favorite season. I like some summertime. I think it harkens back to being kids when we got out of school and had time off in the summer. How come adults don't get time off like that in the summer? We don't get summer vacations that are two months.
2: Solid What's, question. I'm going to bring it up to the board.
1: Yes, please. Yes, please. <laughs> this week's podcast, we have a Denver-based landscape and wildlife photographer, Scott Wilson, on the show. And it is going to be a fun listen and an important listen to tune into. So stick around for that. This week, we're going to roll our pro tips in with the question of the week because this week's question has hacks aplenty that we'll be talking about and tactics and tricks along with it. I'm gonna hand it off to Missy McKenzie, our producer, as she collected this question off social media to read it out to us.
2: Okay, this question comes from Instagram from Benjamin Missy, uh, Benjamin underscore Missy on Instagram. His question says, lots of people seem to think that most photographers just find these giant animals outside their car. Personally, I know that isn't true. It takes a bit of work to find them. I guess I'm wondering how much effort, time, or hiking do you guys put into finding a big bull, ram, or boar?
1: Who's going to start? It, it It is time. But anything about... I'm gonna answer my own question because I just started talking. Hey, guys? Nice guy. <laughs> um, <laughs> All wildlife photography, unless they're just luck, there are those lucky moments, it's about time. Patience, persistence, commitment, and then the reward. And, you know, it's not necessarily the largest of any species that gives us the best reward, the best image. It's the quality of image, I want to put it there right away. But I do appreciate the question, Ben. And for me, it does resonate because a lot of the markets that I do, it's a, whatever it might be, likes the most magnificent, majestic representation that can be caught in visual to display what the function might be the market might be so i'm always looking for something outstanding as far as a representation of a species but it you know it, it will start by saying you can get lucky and it can be a, a short amount of time and effort but more often far more often than not it requires forethought planning going to certain destinations committing days and days and days, and hiking. And I'll even throw in another curveball and say years of time in the field for those special individual animals. So the most magnificent caribou that I've had the privilege of photographing, or moose, or bears, whatever the species might be. It's taken years to accumulate some of those highlight experiences. I may find beautiful animals to photograph on each trip, But some of those that are off the charts, you know, they are few and far between. And it does take time and commitment from, from all the years I've been doing this. So over 20 years, you know, it's there might be 20 times where I've found an animal of that kind of representation to film. And it's a lot of effort, but it's worth it when it does work out. But like I've said before, in so many other podcasts, every trip into the wilderness, into nature has its rewards, big and small. It doesn't have to be a 75-inch bull moose in Alaska or the Yukon to make the trip worthwhile. It could be something subtle as an experience with a family of spruce grouse walking past your feet and having the opportunity to watch them, observe them, and photograph them. But I will admit, actually, I'm going to tell a story. I'm going to spin this. I'm going down a rabbit hole, Mike. (laughs) Uh Oh. So I was in this remote area in central Alaska many years ago now, and we were driving along this forest access road my buddy and I another wildlife biologist photographer and we saw this it was autumn the spruce grouse on the road this male in full display now we all know as biologists that dude is confused he shouldn't be doing full display in autumn because the girls even though they're in the proximity are not interested in mating nor laying eggs with oncoming winter but the day length confuses these birds. It's the same amount of day length, daylight that they have in the spring. So they have this brief period of time where they feel like they should strut, which creates a photo opportunity. So we pulled over and spent some time. in spruce grass, for those of you who have experienced them, are usually a very tolerant bird. So we were able to follow this fellow through the forest, through the spruce trees, with The hens around, the females around, and him, but he'd kept his distance. After maybe 40 minutes, he settled down. We could get very close shots and had a great experience. The point of the story and how elusive some of these most gigantic animals that we encounter can be and how infrequently it happens, I heard maybe half an hour into the time with the spruce grouse, I swore I heard a moose call. Oh, it was that it was just a bull. Oh, but I and I stopped, froze, didn't move. I'm, like, I'm, listening, I'm listening, I'm listening, I can't see more than 20 yards in the spruce forest. Nothing again. So, ah, I must have been, you know, wishful thinking, dreaming. So I kept, I was dreaming, I was fantasizing there was a bull that I is that the light was getting nice. So, we spent another hour with this spruce grouse and got some very nice images. And you know, as I always do when I go into the on these long hikes in the forest, and it wasn't that far, it was maybe a couple hundred yards that we traveled over that period of time. I keep my bearings as best I can so I can retrace my route, especially in a forest like this, I go we hike back to where we parked the truck, and standing about 80 yards down this dirt road was one of the biggest moose I've seen in my life, and it's at the edge of darkness. No photo opportunities. His antlers looked as wide as the road, and he's just there looking at me. And I'm kicking myself so hard that I didn't pick up and just go check out the sound in case it was the bull that I thought I heard, because we would have had half hour, 40 minutes of decent light on one of the most magnificent animals I've ever seen. That's etched in my brain, that experience, as are all of the amazing encounters in wilderness. And it doesn't have to be Mr. Giant but they are infrequent, they do take effort. And as Ben was asking, you know, from my experience and what I do personally, they do far more often than not require forethought planning and a hike, you might be gone half a day looking for them. And that's, those spin off into other experiences too, right, you might go on a hike, you may see one animal, uh, a small bull moose, or maybe a cow and a calf, and have an opportunity to safe distance to film them and have fun, but then an hour later, Just because these animals are moving, you know, here comes along a 60, 70 inch bull moose that you never, I never would have found if I hadn't been out there half a day in the Tega Forest hiking and exploring around. So effort is required patience, time, and effort, but it it still takes years of experience to find the big guys, unless you're just lucky, like Lucky Luke and his horseshoe there. My good buddy who I take on any trip he offers to come on because everyone has been phenomenal. (laughs)
3: Thanks, Luke. Ron, what do you got to say about that?
2: So when I was a kid, I I grew up on a ranch. So work ethic was just something that you develop all the time you were growing up. And I was fortunate enough, you know, during high school, I was I loved to play football. And obviously, Wyoming, it's it's small high school football. But I had a game. That Atlanta uh, me and the Sports Illustrated faces in the crowd. It was a a great game. It got part of my college education paid for. And one of the things that a, a good friend of my dad's, my dad was a coach, and a good friend of my dad's and also a a coach and a, a close family friend, he talked about everybody that was commenting on this, saying how how lucky it was, and he said luck is where preparation and pers perspiration meat and i've always carried that with me throughout life and it it is no different in wildlife you with wildlife photography you make your own luck by being prepared number one and number two by putting in the work and what mark said about you know it, it might take years it it doesn't matter if you're looking for the big bull if you're looking for the big boar grizzly bear or if you're looking for you know whatever it is the the giant mule deer buck you may put in all the effort you possibly can and not come across that animal for the first four or five years and it doesn't matter you know like for myself I've talked about this before the behaviors that you're looking for with even a swift fox or you're looking for that opportunity to photograph a a sage grouse in with the sunrise behind them instead of Getting the full display in perfect light, you know, over the shoulder light, those opportunities don't come along that often. So, you know, luck is where preparation and perspiration meet, but luck also favors the prepared. And when you're out there and you see those opportunities, and then you decide, you know, I might sacrifice a whole morning in one spot waiting for that animal, this animal that I want to see. And knowing full well that I might not get anything else, I might not get anything at all. But if I'm putting the time and and effort, eventually it's going to pay off and pay off in a big way. And that's just, you know, it's it's all about the sacrifice, getting chewed up, getting the blisters. You know, we we were fortunate to be on a really good bull uh, last fall in, uh, central alaska and every one of us came back and the the, <laughs> the thing that we all laughed about together was just what we went through to get those images going through the the rain and the water and get your shins just torn up because the the willows but it was worth it just to just to be able to see that animal let alone get a few images of it and those are the things that you've got to be, be able to endure and endure with a smile and I, I think that Lady Luck's going to shine down on you more often the the more effort that you put in. Now, the preparedness part that comes, and we've talked in the past ad nauseum about, you know, Mark's talked about how he kind of scouts via social media. Um, there's other ways to scout. You know, your your wildlife uh, management agencies in your state or province also have banks full of information. And if a person, you know, you put a a map together and where these animals have been seen or where this certain species is uh, frequent, you can put yourself in the right spot to put that effort in and increase your odds just by doing a little bit of research, sitting down at the computer during that off season uh, in July when things are so hot that animals are basically nocturnal. That's a great time to do some research and then you have yourself prepared for the fall. So that's another way that you could be prepared. And, and uh, you're not necessarily going to find the, that information anywhere else. That's just data that's been collected for years and years and years.
3: So my take on the whole thing is, you know, I think you look at an experience level, right? So somebody that's just starting out. I don't necessarily think they need to be looking for the biggest, baddest bull out there. I think they need to be perfecting their craft, right? So if you get to a park, uh, let's say you're shooting elk and you're going to a, a national park and there happens to be a bunch of, of animals that are used to people, they're used to the, that whole situation, you've got tons of photographers lined up, that's a great place to just start honing your craft. And what you're doing is you're adding a bunch of images to your library. And then when you do get to the point where you feel confident that you can get that image, that's the time to start going and looking for those big majestic animals because you don't feel like you're missing something. You've got all this stuff that you know that you could get that's low-hanging fruit, right? You know that you're going to go out there. You've got all those images. And if you do take a day to say, okay, you know what? There's elk here. There's got to be other elk in different parts of this park, and it is going to require a hike to get to it. And I may not be successful, or I might be successful. You know, you just take as much information as you can. And then you feel a little bit, you know, it's still a bummer. If you're not taking any pictures and you know people are down there getting all the easy, low-hanging fruit pictures, you know you're missing that. But what are you really missing? Are you missing something that you already have? That always allowed me to just say, you know what, I just don't want to fight the crowds. I don't want to be getting the same pictures that 10 other photographers are getting. I'm just going to venture out and go find my own. And that's how I always approach it too. Is just get out there, know that I've got it. If I'm going to go photograph a new species, let's say I was going to go shoot ibex somewhere or something, I'm going to shoot whatever I can get. Just because you got to start. That's where you learn the behavior. You learn a lot of the common stuff. You kind of learn well, how does that animal look best? Does the coat look good in bright light or does it look good in the shade? Or do, how do how am I going to frame it? What's the best composition for this particular species? you kind of get all that stuff and then you go after the big guy. So I, to this day, I still will focus on, it depends on what I already have and then what is a big animal to me. Cause it to everybody is different. Right. So I think,
2: sorry, Mike, going, going on what you said, I think once you get those images, you get the low hanging fruit, you also take the pressure off yourself. Exactly. And if, yeah, and and that makes it a little bit easier to pass up on those simple opportunities. You've already got the bank and yeah, there there's no pressure. You've got what you need, but right now you can go after even maybe not even the big biggest animal, but now you go after the the shot that's gonna set you apart the with special moments. With, yeah, exactly.
3: Right. And you gotta it, put yourself it, in that it, position, you know. you, I, I t- ro- elk or prime example there's a lot of places you can go and you can find them in big fields and national parks where it's just a common place for them to congregate but if you want that picture that's going to set you apart if you want this big majestic mountain as your backdrop you're going to have to go find that first and then hopefully find an elk that happens to be in front of it you know it just it's i don't know it's just time out there and and Feeling confident that you're not gonna miss something. I I know in the early stages of my game, it was always like, I just want pictures. I don't care. I was never after the big bull or the big buck or the big boar. I was just after pictures and that, and I don't think I did it on purpose. I don't think I was trying to hone my craft on purpose. I think I was just after pictures. But now that I've got all that stuff in my library, I'm thinking, okay, now what can I do to make a special image of this species? And if I go out and spend a whole day and I don't get anything, I don't it doesn't bother me cuz I have stuff. But if I do get something, it's like winning the lottery.
2: Absolutely.
1: And with effort, you often do get surprises, you know, compositions you couldn't have anticipated because of the hike where you ended up. And for me, it personally it's twofold. When I collect an image of a truly magnificent animal, it means a lot to me, but if I also a lot of effort into that day had an incredible experience hiking the tundra that day it amplifies the memory for me too so it does
3: i i think going on that and i think we've talked about this before but oftentimes my favorite image isn't the image that everybody likes and it's not the image that is the biggest bull or the biggest bear or the biggest goose you know it's how much effort i put into getting this shot is oftentimes my favorite picture and that's a lot of it. It doesn't have to be something that goes in a magazine or it doesn't have to be something that wins a contest. You know, sometimes it's just that satisfaction of, man, I, I, I got a cool shot. I got something that I really like.
1: Enjoy that. Yep. Yeah, don't put all that pressure on that it has to be that successful if it has a memory and a meaning attached to it celebrate those too i had a canvas i printed uh, put up in my office it may not be the best picture from the trip but that newfoundland woodland caribou i spent three days with last year with i was just so much of the time alone with those caribou and on the tundra and edge of the ocean and it was just a really meaningful trip and experience so i wanted that up just to have for memory for motivation uh, you know to treasure that light that opportunity that happened
3: and so, I think I mean, that's a good point right there. It's you're out there alone too. If you do that, if you've got that library and you decide, okay, I'm going to go find something. You do get some really quality time. I mean, I can tell you, I hate going into some of these parks. And I think we talked about it in the, the podcast we did about the trip up to Alaska. You know, I was kind of dreading going to Yellowstone because you just hear about all this stuff and you're here. You just know there's going to be 20 other photographers on the road and it's car's driving by and it's hustle and bustle. And do you really feel like you're in nature? Not really. But the minute you head out and you're on a trail and it's just you and one other person or just you by yourself, it's a whole different experience. And, and that drive to go find that different thing will allow you to have that different experience, which is, I think a lot of the reason we all do this, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
3: Absolutely. Yep.
1: Yeah. Be smart, be safe, have common sense, plan ahead. But, to me, yeah, I. If I didn't hike, I would have one fiftieth of the portfolio that I do, especially the more meaningful shots and the more successful images and the ones that, like we point out, it's you know, I think we're going to cover this in a in future podcasts, if not once more than once, I don't know. But the national parks, you know, they're a great opportunity, but it's it's a it's a different experience if it's a popular tourist destination. Not all of them are. There are many national parks or state parks or places like this, provincial parks, that offer tremendous amount of nature and wildlife photography that aren't on the major tourist radars. But those that are, it is a different experience. And it's it's everything around it's different. And I personally, you know, I will find myself in some of them now and then but i prefer to be in a place that's quieter with just a couple of friends or my wife or myself Where and what you get from that experience just to me resonates more and there's there is something there's a there's a mental handicap for me to stand somewhere and see 15 other big telephoto lenses pointing in the same direction snapping the same pictures and i don't i don't know if we talked about this just in conversation off show or whether we we're on show, but, you know, it's not actually I think it was with Dale recently. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's it's not a good idea depending on the market. If you're just selling prints and you have a gallery or, or if you're selling stuff through social media, no big deal. But if you're trying to get in and work with publications, then you don't want. The same images everybody else has
3: well even if you're doing a contest in your local club and you're all shooting in the local same areas you don't want to be shooting next to those guys or those gals because you know oftentimes it's the same animal it's just hopefully you got that one special little composition that everybody else was. their batteries died and you got the shot you know you can just eliminate by going somewhere else Mm -hmm. And I think your point to going to places that aren't as popular, I mean, I think we all, and it's, it's just human nature to say, okay, I saw a picture on Instagram and I saw it was from Yellowstone. I'm going to Yellowstone. You know, there's plenty of places like Yellowstone. You don't have to go to Yellowstone. You can look at that topography. You can look at a map and you can say, you know what? There's probably similar things. Now that being said, it's probably going to be way more difficult. Part of the, part of the intrigue about going to a national park is there oftentimes those animals are, accustomed and used to people so it does make it a little bit easier so it's Mm -hmm. a lot harder to go into some place where animals aren't habituated but sometimes you get a much better pose that way or a much better reaction or a much better behavior because it is different than something that's habituated.
1: Well as far as you know a a deer you get that wild look you know you find yourself a a beautiful big buck and it's habituated You know, you don't often get that. But if you are somewhere where they're not used to seeing people as frequently and as calm, then you get that look, that expression. And that is a game changer for appeal on a print or whatever it might be, whether it's your club contest or whether it's, you know, publishing or whatever. Um, It makes a difference, that wild eyed look. But there are a multitude of places. I know for moose, there's so many across North America that people don't know about where you can find moose. And the thing is that it looks different, you know, the Yellowstone elk, I've never been drawn to film there because everything I see is in grassy meadows and, but I need a tremendous variety of habitat and composition and look and lighting and dramatic landscapes. And just where I've, the majority I've seen come out of there. And that's just me. Maybe that's an inaccurate assessment, Ron, you can illuminate that. But, um, there are other places I'd rather go and far fewer animals but the quality of images that I can walk away with are superior in my mind Mm -hmm. and it's not shoulder to shoulder and not, you know, there's no sometimes nobody else around the picture that Brandon, our good buddy really liked with that harem, nobody was there that day with the bull moose at all way back in the woods so Ben, yeah, thanks for the question but you know, it does, to me, effort does translate into success and the one big thing you know, in addition to the hiking you really want to give it takes years to build a collection of the most iconic of the species.
3: And lots of, okay. yeah, the years, the research, everything that goes into it. I mean, I, mean, I always have my ears open. And, you know, you got to travel in the circles where you can pick that information up too, right? Whether it is your club or it's speaking with the local wildlife agency or talking with a biologist or talking with someone that's, you know, I find a lot of stuff just talking to ranchers that, you know, they're just out in the country, you know, they're doing whatever. And they might say, man, I see this big old bull or I see a whatever. Right. All the time I see it over here. And I love that kind of stuff because, you know, it's probably a one of a kind opportunity that you've got opened up.
1: I, I find it amazing that when you, when you look at the map of North America, there's so much vast wilderness out there there's so much opportunity but people do go to the comfort zones right they do go to the access easy access places and i mean there's some i'm not knocking it no i go to those places it's yeah but for i prefer to go somewhere different And and some of the places i go also have easy access but they're just not on the mainstream media radar they're out there people can find them And it's just quieter that way. There may be a couple of other photographers. And the other thing, too, is your friends. It's give and take. You know, we have a great network of photography friends that travel all over the globe, and especially North America, and they're good friends. And we talk stuff. We share information. It's not competitive that way. Because if I go there two months from now, or if I even happen to be there at the same time, we're not in each other's way, and and we're friends. I've always preferred that kind of relationship with, you know, a, a handful of people than the competitive approach too. So networking's important. Yeah. Sharing's important and that builds friendships. And we all are like minded. We love this wildlife stuff. It doesn't have to be a competitive thing that way. So but yeah, effort's a big, big part of success for imagery. Perseverance, effort. Patience. Planning, patience.
3: Don't try to get it right away. <laughs> And
1: I can't, you know, aside from one or two trips that might have been this time of year with way too many bugs in the forest kind of thing, I can't recall a wilderness trip or experience that I regretted doing. Because it always slows down the rhythm, you know, of life. And and again, come out appreciating something and giving gratitude for whatever cool little bird or animal or this sunlight happened.
3: Well, It'd I think great. in Ron's last podcast, what did you say? when we Well, your Yellowstone podcast, didn't you say the best picture you got that whole trip or the one you liked the most was a little Tweety Bird?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, just something that happened in the quiet when everybody else left. And, well, there's a sleeping bear. Nobody wants to sit and wait for it. And But these warblers, yeah, those warblers were going crazy all around us, and they were curious as to what we birds. were. Yeah, they are.
1: Tricky, beautiful. Yeah, We were in Algonquin in the spring on a canoe trip, and I don't know what was going on. There's a small little lake we were on, but the shoreline was just buzzing with them. There had to be hundreds, just tree to tree to tree, and different three or four different species mm-hmm. and colors. Just to see that, it lifts us up.
3: And right? To me, and, that's just as much of a trophy. I mean, I think it's the little things that get passed up because you really don't take the time to, to look at them. If you're always out there looking for the big megafauna, a lot of times you'll drive right by a really cool warbler or some sort of little Tweety bird or a a Pine Martin or what, you know, that can be just as cool. And, you know, Mm -hmm. you just pass it up because you've got your eye on something else. So it, it pays to just keep everything open.
1: And and today's podcast will resonate about that,
3: you know, enjoy
1: being out there and take it in. It doesn't, you know, I, I love getting those big animals. I would never deny that to anybody. You know, more importantly, it's just the experience of being in the wilderness.
3: Ultimately, that's why we all do it.
1: I'd like to welcome Scott Wilson, a Denver-based landscape and wildlife photographer that moved to Colorado in July 2015 from the UK. He's got an impressive portfolio you can easily see on Instagram, and he's got quite a story that I'm sure will resonate with so many of you listeners. Scott, welcome to the
2: show.
0: Many thanks for that intro. Thanks very much. Great to be here. Hey
2: Scott, it's been several years and actually I first saw your story on Facebook and kind of started following your your photography, but we also have kids that are about the same age and you have your son's a runner, my son's a runner, so that was kind of a common ground even though we didn't know each other. it, It kind of kept me interested, but looking at your wildlife images, I haven't honestly seen very many of your landscapes um, but looking at your wildlife images you're obviously somebody who was uh, kindred spirit to to us and then again with the with the story that I am sure we'll get into shortly um, you were just someone that I I felt uh, compelled to follow not only a great photographer but also somebody who's trying to do some good with the the hand that they've been dealt so uh, i appreciate you taking the time i know you're a busy guy
0: uh thanks thanks very much for those kind words And i think like many of us i think our photography career just evolves and changes and grows i mean to the point now i've termed this phrase photo advocate i i I actually try and look for ways that my photography can do good of course i get immense pleasure from it you talked about shooting our children there's nothing more satisfying for me than shooting my kids. But now what I do is actually give back to that community and shoot all of the kids and actually you know, mm-hmm. donate photographs at the end of the year kind of thing. Uh, but if I can actually help raise money or awareness for a- causes that are important to me through my photography, then that, that to me is, is the real kind of mission now.
1: I'm, I'm really looking forward to sharing some of those very impressive details with our listeners but I if you don't mind can we back up and just where did the spark for your photography career start if you look at your Instagram feed you have an incredible breadth of images over 1400 posts on there that cover landscapes cityscapes people wildlife when did it start for you
0: so i think i mean i, I can take you back 20 years to when i was living in glasgow with, with my now wife yayone uh, and She moved in and and like many of us said, this bachelor pad is not designed for a couple. So (laughs) we we moved uh, out to the countryside and I immediately fell in love with the outdoors. And I remember vividly washing the dishes one night and looking out my uh, kitchen window and seeing these deer looking back at me. And I know that's not uh, an amazing thing for a Coloradan to hear. But it was you know just lovely experience and i was saying to my where's my camera and she's going well don't be stupid you don't have a camera <laughs> and just, it was just at that moment i kind of realized I, I i wanted not just to appreciate this but to capture it for myself very quickly after that i got into the club scene uh, and and i and I'm, I'm a very competitive photographer at heart as well i'll be honest and if you want to do well in clubs you can't just be a specialist you have to Apply yourself across multiple genres. So, I felt myself very drawn to the competition. So, there would be a sports competition, black and white competition, a landscape competition. And through that, I just forced myself to learn and apply to, to different genres. And, and, I, and I still apply that thought process today. I've, I've done a couple of lectures at university and at lo- local schools. And one of the feedbacks I get is often presenters tell their students to specialize very quickly and find their their niche within photography and I've got to be honest that's counterintuitive to me I actually say get yourself as wide as possible it doesn't mean don't be the best you can be in every single genre but but you talk about shooting your children there's so much joy there but you you don't want to set Mm -hmm. that aside while you're shooting wildlife and there's nothing to say we can't do both Uh, as long as you can I suppose indulge yourself in the kit that allows you to take advantage of multiple genres and I say to everybody go for it.
1: Sure. You know, it's it, my my problem is I just shoot so much for what I have to do that the camera doesn't always come with me elsewhere. Because <laughs> it's just I, it's always a part of me when I'm working and I I'm so rarely separated from that when I when I do it's not with me and I thankfully smartphones are allowing me to get those kid and family images and document that, but I hear you. And, and you can see in your portfolio that you've got, you know, a lot of experience across those and that. So it's self-taught then.
0: Absolutely self-taught. I've never done a class uh, and I actually felt because of that, quite awkward uh, going to speak to university students or, t- or to school students. But I actually found very quickly that photography is genuinely very experience based. And, and the teachers there to teach the, the technical application and what the buttons do, et cetera. And of course, I know that intuitively now through, through years of self-learning, but what I was trying to convey to them, I suppose, is the emotional connection with photography, the, the, the visual, the composition. I think composition is something that's just so difficult to teach. And actually through example is, is often the way that you get that point across. The other thing I would really counsel people on if they're willing to learn is just put yourself under the scrutiny of a club club judge and you'll very quickly get a, get a lesson in, in where things are going wrong. If I'm honest, I'd say the UK judging scene is, is stricter than the US. We tend to be quite nice in the US in our feedback. And and the, the UK club scene's a little bit more brutal. And I actually think that's healthy and you learn more as a photographer.
2: Yeah, you're forced to a little bit quicker. I agree. Yeah. And that's, you know, we talk all the time about mentoring and Quite honestly, in Wyoming, there's probably three active photography clubs in the whole state, so there's not really a lot of opportunity, but finding that mentor and finding somebody who, just like you just said about the, the club judges, finding somebody who's willing to be brutally honest with you and, and accepting that feedback and just not taking it as a negative to, to quit or run away, but take it, take the advice for what it is and, and try to learn from it and, and move forward.
0: Absolutely. I think the shared interest can certainly lead to mentorships as well. I found that the more I make friendships in Colorado through through wildlife photography, that you're kind of learning and sharing not just the friendship and the passion, but actually techniques and advice uh, with, with sort of like-minded people. And that could be of any standard. I don't, I, you know, I, I, I learn from the school students that I speak to as much as I learn from sort of wise old photographers. And it's an absolute privileged to see what these 16 year olds are churning out and you start of think wow if i could turn the clock back 40 years or 30 <laughs> years instead of just 20 imagine where we might be now
2: absolutely
0: well, and the, with- the, the
3: advantage that these younger kids have is with the digital too it's just immediate feedback and you can change stuff up so fast and just be nimble and and make those changes and if you're willing to deal with the rejection which was the hardest part for me when we started was man you got to have thick skin to but it does nothing but help like everybody said it's that's what you need you just need that to get to where you to get to where you want to be what you know and that's different for everybody
0: i I agree it might be technically easy for them because of the digital revolution but that also means there are many many more students that they're competing with so i think that kind of works both ways it's probably harder for them to rise to the top because um, the playing field is just so wide now. I agree yeah, with
1: that too. Agreed. You know, in the sharing and communication, that's the whole premise and the enjoyment that we get out of the podcast by meeting so many people like yourself that come from different backgrounds, different experiences, different opinions of technique. And yeah. just sharing that, you know, is, is a reward in itself, as you point out. So you were nominated several times for Landscape Photographer of the Year in the UK. Always the
0: bridesmaid, never the bride. (laughs) Well, those are
1: still strong accolades. (laughs) Thank you. And then you decided to move to Colorado in the summer of 2015. It sounds like, from what I read online, you were looking forward to being in Colorado for the landscape opportunities.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I have worked in the brewing business for 20 years, so a a big opportunity came up for our family to move. We were lucky enough; we had a sort of pre-trip in, in March of that year, so we came across, and everybody just fell in love with Colorado. It's it kind of hard not to. Uh, and obviously, with a landscape photographer's eye, I, I was just absolutely, um, you know, um, in love with the state very, very quickly, and just so excited by the opportunities. And I'd say in that first year, I mean, we just moved at pace around the state, and. I think I ticked off all the kind of obvious sites very, very quickly, you know, like Maroon Bell, Steamboat Springs, the, the Great Sand Dunes, etc. And, and I don't say that to diminish those places. I will go back to these places again and again and again. So to get them in different light and different seasons is, is so exciting. That culminated uh, with an invitation to John Fielder's gallery in Santa Fe. So I was one of the resident artists there, which was just a wonderful time. But then, just a year after moving, I think this is what you're leading up to. I, I discovered uh, that I had stage four colon cancer. Um, my mother had died of colon cancer in her 50s, so I was all kind of, already kind of alert to, to the risk. But I was still too young, uh, technically, to have the sort of param- the, the regular colonoscopy. Um, so I was sort of rushed in, ha- had operations, and then 40 weeks of chemotherapy. One of the challenges of the chemotherapy treatment is it makes your skin hyper photosensitive so i mean colorado suddenly went from 300 days of blessed sunshine to this curse of 300 days of sunshine Uh, and i've got to be honest when you're told you've got stage four cancer photography is not the first thing in your mind but once we knew that i could be treated and you know we were going to manage uh, manage that through i obviously turned to Well, how do i shoot that's that's what i do that's what keeps me going and that's when i realized we just have this beautiful abundance of wildlife on our doorsteps in colorado and more than that it's accessible by car so suddenly i had this shaded studio that i could drive around these wonderful parks and just shoot wildlife to my heart's content Uh, and it just opened up this wonderful new genre that i had dabbled in now and again before but then suddenly found myself specializing, probably for the last two and a half years, pretty much in wildlife photography. And and I wouldn't turn the clock back from that point of view, obviously I would on the cancer, Um, but but the wildlife photography has been an absolute joy. Um, That gave me an idea, like we were talking at the start, well, how how do I give back to the people that have done so much to help me through my treatment? And I came up with an idea for a book inevitably called Through the Window, (laughs) which was uh, basically capturing wildlife in Colorado, um, but also my story, you know, and, and how my values had driven me, the health uh, side of things, the medical community that I wanted to thank. Uh, and that became a fundraising book for the Colorectal Cancer Alliance. Through my whole illness, though, I mean, I've got, as you've said, many followers on Facebook and Instagram, and I never mentioned my illness once. I didn't want it to be... I suppose if I'm honest, a sympathy vote. Uh, So I waited till the day that I was, um, I don't wanna say cured, but in remission. Um, And that was in August 2017. So we made the announcement about my disease, my illness, my recovery, and the publication of the book all in the same day. Wow. And and it's definitely my most popular post to date. But my little funny story for you is, the, the, the term for remission in the U.S. is NED, which is No Evidence of Disease. So I've very proudly had those letters for two years uh, coming up this summer. In Scotland, where I'm from, NED means Non-Educated Delinquent. <laughs> <laughs> so when I actually published the news, that I was Ned after a battle for a year. Everyone just thought this was absolutely <laughs> hilarious. And the serious message about cancer seemed to get lost a little bit.
2: <laughs> That's awesome.
0: What a great yeah. motto, though.
1: And and tell people. I mean, I'm so impressed with what you were able to do with it. I mean, the, I look forward to seeing it. But as far as the funds raised, it's very significant, in my opinion. Uh, anyway. Yeah.
0: So I, I, th- I think for one guy, it's quite significant. I've got to be on. I'm now in the board of the Colorectal Cancer Alliance, so I, I see the the challenge that we face. So I, I kind of beat myself up that it's just a drop in the ocean. We, we, we've raised about 50,000 over, over the last sort of eight, 18 months or so across uh, picture sales and book publication. And the beauty, cause I went through a Kickstarter route and raised all the funds uh, outside every single penny from the book has been able to go directly into the bank account and the colorectal cancer line. So that that's very important to me as well, that it's kind of all proceeds uh, have, have gone gone back there. The reception in Colorado, the media, people, has been absolutely phenomenal. And and I, and I know everybody loves a good cancer story, but people just, you know, the, the love and, and affection that I felt as a consequence of that story has just been absolutely uplifting. And good. it's just a great inspiration for other people going through the same battle. And I think that's really the important thing.
1: Well, it's such a scary disease, and it's relatively common. I, I lost my grandfather to it. My mother's had it. Um, Fortunately, I haven't had the experience myself and hope never to, of course, pray on that. But more, I mean, the funds are important, but it it gets people communicating and talking and educating about it. And I think that's something you've alluded to in the literature I saw about you online was how motivational or rewarding that was to think that somebody might go and learn about this and be tested for it. And, and catch it early if they yeah. had it. Kind uh, of you're
0: thing. absolutely right. I mean, I talk about, there's a, there's a quick sort of plug for the book. I mean, that, that's the, the book there. And, and I talk okay. about it on three levels. So, one is it's a photo book. And, and if you just simply want to see some nice pictures of wildlife in Colorado, there's a nice book. If you're going through treatment, then hopefully it gives people hope and inspiration and, and optimism. I talk about the values, which really sort of helps me through. Um, You know, it's like love, persistence, optimism, determination. There's not one negative thought or sentiment in this whole book, despite it being a book about stage four cancer. So that's the kind of second level. The third level, I didn't really realize until after I'd launched the book. And people would come up to me and kind of whisper, oh, I love that picture of a hummingbird. How did you get that? And maybe it's all guys about our age, and maybe two or three questions in they're saying, how did you actually find out you had cancer? What should I do if I'm nervous? And that still gives me goosebumps that my product could actually get to the stage it's helping people overcome their fear of cancer to the point that they'll actually go to the doctor and talk about it before it's too late. And and that that, that became the absolute purpose for the book for me in the end. Right on. Very good.
2: On a on a personal level, though, I mean transition and knowing you weren't going to be able to maintain the the pace of your landscape photography you made the transition fairly quickly it sounds like to wildlife and if you wouldn't mind I think for every one of us there's a little bit of peace that we find while we're out and that's why we enjoy it so much that's what drew us to wildlife in the first place talk about how how did that help you get through you know those 40 weeks
0: yeah, I think it's a, a great question because a, a lot of people couldn't understand that I would say I found solace in therapy through my darkest time being by myself in a car. You know, it's almost like, isn't that the worst place where you just sit and dwell on how bad this could be? And you know yourselves, just this interaction you have waiting for the moment of nature and waiting for that movement. But I also find it was really positive thinking time. And while I was not shooting, while I was waiting, I was actually writing. So all of the book, it's not that long, by the way, so I don't want to overplay it. It's quite an easy read, but um, <laughs> all of that writing happened in the car, you know, during quiet moments. And it really allowed me to get comfortable with the idea of what I was going through and, and, and enjoy my therapy and see my purpose and actually bringing, bringing that book to people. So the car became the venue uh, for all of that, and I would write little notes on paper or scraps on the notes function on, on the iPhone, etc., and then sort of piece it together at, at home through treatment as well. They, 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 every cocktail that you get has a dose of steroids, and I would get treated on a Monday, and the steroids would kick in on Monday night, and I wouldn't sleep. It was just like you know, absolute wired night. So I would take all the notes and images from that day and start to process them and sort of piece things together while I just simply couldn't sleep on a Monday night. So strangely, the treatment process actually contributed to the book production. (laughs) Does that answer your question? Yeah.
2: Yeah. It it does. And I, you know, I think we all find peace in being out there. And I, I would say every one of us enjoys being there with other people, but I also, and I know these guys do too, enjoy the times where you can just have some, have some peace alone. And so those, and those times rarely are a burden.
0: No, and, and you know, that, that is a common factor with landscape photography, I think. Being, being at one, at peace with nature, enjoying the kind of vista in front of you um, is, is certainly something I think uh, touches landscape photographers as much as it does wildlife photographers.
3: Mm-hmm. Talk about the transition from landscape to wildlife and then what that thought process was. Because I've, I've looked at a lot of your landscape stuff and it's awesome. Thank you. But then to see that and go to wildlife, which is a whole different animal for a lot of people, it's I'm just interested to hear how that was for you.
0: Yeah, I, I, there are clearly considerations. We just leave those to side for one minute. I think the conversation we had at the start about sports photography helped me a lot, and I I would liken wildlife photography in in many of its forms to sports photography. So. I already had the sports kit, so that helps. I had, I had a 400mm lens. I've since acquired a 600 and clearly they just give you a massive advantage in that sense. So if you imagine kind of, and I appreciate wildlife photography has a sort of spectrum from, you know, straightforward, free, freeze the frame to something that might be a little bit more creative, like slow panning or a more artistic set shot. But if you just go for that first line photography, that's like new sports photography, where you're just trying to catch things, freeze them as quickly as possible. So I I already had that kind of instinct, if you like, through years of shooting sports and for club competitions, and was able to apply that. In the UK as well, once a year, I would make a pilgrimage to an island called the Farn Islands off the east coast of England. And it's a puffin colony once a year. If you've ever sh- tried to shoot hummingbirds and think they're difficult, you should try and shoot puffins in flight. And I can see all the smiles and nods because they're just like bullets. So I had that kind of instinctive training as well. That I'd been there once a year and kind of had had that in my blood. So I found, I guess, those things coming together uh, in Colorado. The difficulties were kind of overcoming, you know, the restrictions of a car window very quickly realised I've got to have a beanbag for stability because, you know, I was losing shots. Then things like try, trying to, you know, a badger runs in front of your car and you're trying to get from the driver's seat to the passenger seat, vaulting a gear stick with a 28-inch lens, that's not comfortable. So you kind of realise then maybe sitting in the back seat and sliding across for those sorts of moments is, is a little bit more practical. And these are tips that work for anybody. They are also sort of I suppose, cancer treatment related tips. So I have a condition now called neuropathy, which is like permanent pins and needles in my hands and in my feet, up right up to my calves. And I would be trying to shoot. And if imagine that was the camera and the shutters there. And I was pressing the corner of the camera, thinking I was shooting and basically missing scenes just because I had no sensitivity. So I put a little paint spot on the shutter release, a bit like a braille dot. And then even if I wasn't looking, I could actually feel what I was doing. And I actually think that through my sort of temporary disability, you can get to ideas that would actually help able-bodied photographers. So I actually think, you know, Nikon, Canon, et cetera, if they actually thought through the challenges facing people who are trying to overcome difficulties like that, they could actually improve photography and kit for all of us.
2: Oh, Without a doubt. There's, I know... Uh another guy that puts he'll put uh, like a felt dot on top of his shutter release and he does that because he's out in the wintertime quite a bit so he can feel that dot where you know he wouldn't have the dexterity with a glove on to be able to to find the shutter release so yeah there's all kinds of little tricks that he, he people learn that, what's that
0: you should patent that quickly <laughs> right. broadcast his idea
1: <laughs> there was something else I,
0: idea.
1: I read that was a first for me I, well you, you mentioned from shooting from the vehicle using it as a blind or a hide in that sense works well I mean the wildlife in a lot of these areas are used to vehicles right. and are far more accepting of that than a person walking right so there's a benefit to that but you would shut your engine off for long distance shots because of vibration but there was something more that I, just stopped me in my tracks that I hadn't heard of that you actually weighted your car down with sandbags. So what was that for?
0: <laughs> so when I moved here, I had um, the the misguidance to buy a rear wheel drive vehicle. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so that, that, that was uh, a lesson that I will uh, probably um, Take, take with me and many jokes and lots of skidding, but, but effectively. So if you've got a rear-wheel drive vehicle in Colorado, it's an absolute nightmare, as you know. So so I've since sold that and, and got a Jeep, uh, like like a proper Colorado. But that was simply <laughs> about stopping skidding. Ah, and the, I think. wild horses in northern Colorado or northwest Colorado. There are areas there where it's not just ice and snow, but if, if it rains in for 10 minutes, the ground turns to slick in seconds and you can get seriously stranded. Uh, so I'm very, very considerate now, just not of kit choice, but actual vehicle choice and what you're taking these kind of missions. In, in Britain, we complain about poor weather, but I realise now it's a, it's a very modest complaint, you know, versus the sort of extreme weather conditions that you... You do encounter right here, and you, and you have to respect them, and, and sort of take it seriously. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. So it sense. wasn't
3: as much as uh, stabilizing the vehicle as it was just having weight in the car so you can get up and down the road.
0: Yeah, like, I'm, I'm, I'm actually struggling to remember this anecdote. So, <laughs> uh, but that's the only time I've used sandbags for the the vehicle. I'm wondering if it's maybe a TV interview that's got mistranslated because I definitely. Sure was. The sandbag for stability over the window, but many of us do. That's not certainly not a unique thing for me.
1: So, when they featured you on the Denver News, there was the video clip. They also had an article along with it. So, in the article, that was mentioned.
0: Okay. Maybe paraphrase a little
1: bit. It might have been, but it makes total sense. I mean, when I was first driving as a teenager a few years ago, Uh, The the truck I had was two-wheel drive rear-wheel drive and soon as autumn came we loaded the back down with weight Otherwise, we would never get anywhere. So you had to do that. Thankfully all-wheel drive or four-wheel drive is far more common now
0: Yeah, no, definitely
3: Let's talk a little bit about the horses because it's pretty cool I mean most people think of horses and you don't think of a wild animal, but these are wild I guess they're not wild. They're trespass horses. They've been they were I guess tame at once I mean, the horses are pretty cool. They're not necessarily wild. They're more like, they're generations of wild horses. So these horses that we photograph are not tame animals by any means. But at one time, they, were, they came from stock that was probably a tame horse that was just let go at some point. And so now you have these horses that are running around out there on BLM land or forest land or whatever that when I started photographing them, I was... I was intrigued, you know, I love wild animals, but this necessarily isn't a wild animal until you get out there. And then you realize these are wild animals and the way they interact and the personalities that you see and the way that all those different little herds work together or not work together. It's just an interesting, super awesome thing to watch and witness. And I haven't been there in a couple of years to the spot that I go, but I, I miss it. And I really want to get back. And after seeing your images, it's, that's that paint stallion that you have is an amazing animal
0: uh, it, it, they are amazing animals and i honestly don't think of them as anything other than wild and i appreciate there is a little bit of a blend of different animals in there and some may well come from stock like you've described but i i know they're able to take dna right back to the first sort of spanish visitors that came to the Americas. So. You know, I mean, we're talking three, four hundred years of, of sort of lineage here. So these horses, as you say, are absolutely wild in, in every sense of the word—living wild, acting wild—and uh, and we have to respect that. I mean, the, the reward we get is is just these absolutely raw images of of animals interacting the way that wild animals do. I and mean, I've I've just come back from a safari in Africa. and and i don't mean this to sound privileged in any way but the raw energy that i saw in the wild animals here in in these horses actually outstrips what i saw in in africa and it's just you know the the sort of close contact the 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 brutality of some of the fight scenes the the beauty of the sort of mother with foal scenes there's just such an array and diversity and, and variety of animals there it's absolutely breathtaking and to have that on our doorstep in Colorado is a sheer thrill to me. Uh, I think you know, but the, one of the fight scenes won the um, Colorado Life uh, Wildlife Image of the Year uh, competition this year as well. And that was just such a, a, a great thrill for me to, to actually get that accolade. And I think honour you know, the, these horses that are, really aren't that well known within Colorado but if I, when I, I often have debates, as I'm sure you do with local friends here, but what would be the big five in Colorado? You know, clearly a mountain lion would be up there, but I would put these stallions up there as well. And if you can catch a, a beautiful wild stallion in, in his absolute powerful best, then, then nothing beats it in Colorado as far as I'm concerned.
3: I would agree with that. And I got, I don't know that I would agree with the, that being the number one, but I, I was intrigued and I got pulled back several times just because you'd go out there and you would just, I mean, it was something that you could count on because you could always find some horses. It wasn't like you're going to get skunked. Yeah. But you get out there and and then once you start finding one, you get, you start figuring it out. Then you start realizing, Oh, there's another herd over here and there's another herd over here. And then you start watching the dynamics and you see these stallions kind of eyeing each other. And then, you know something's gonna happen, and sometimes it does, and or well, most of the time it doesn't. Sometimes it does, and you just hope that you can see and witness that interaction and what's gonna go on. And uh, we had some really awesome times out there, and it's just such a cool place.
0: Yeah, no, I agree, and and I I think you're being fair. It's I would definitely have it in the top five, but if you if you put a, a set of mountain lines in front of me, I'd probably quite attracted to that. <laughs>
3: But that's tough. That one's a tough, uh, tough nut to crack because yeah. I, I've uh, been doing this for a long time and I think I've, I've been able to photograph one wild mountain lion and it was total accident and it wasn't a very good shot, but I shot it just because it was a wild oh. mountain lion. Okay. So what else, uh, in addition to the horses, what else do you like to key in on? What, um, you know some of the haunts around Denver or places around Denver I know of that you go to, but do you make it out further now that you're past the treatment? Or are you getting up into some of the bigger big game stuff or some of the small bird stuff? Or
0: so a little bit of a mix to be honest. And just to qualify, so I am still in treatment. So one one of the difficulties of being stage four is you have to kind of maintain your, your remission. So every two weeks I go back for treatment. Which means I still have to avoid um, sunshine. So, but now rather than restricting myself to the car, I'll wear like a face shield, you know, the way that sensible gardeners will wear. So, it's, it's not so much of a handicap. So, I do get out and about uh, with the camera. So, I've got to be honest, I, I will happily visit the Mustangs once a month. So, that probably takes up quite a bit of uh, time there. Uh, I love um, the, the sort of seasons in Colorado. I've started to learn now that just what sort of animals are coming up at what particular season. So right now I'm buzzing to see hummingbirds um, and just, you know, get out there. And again, it's partly because of the photographic challenge, as it is just catching a sort of beautiful piece of nature. We're very lucky as a family. We're going off to Costa Rica for one week in uh, August. They have something like 55 species of hummingbirds so I will just completely yeah. dedicate myself to that for, for that whole week and again that's where the curse of not being able to go in the sun means I don't have any beach time anyway so the, the family doesn't blame me at all <laughs> if I just say right, I'm going off to to shoot hummingbirds uh, and, and I'll see you at night so that all kind of works quite, quite compatibly. And then, and then we have sort of events in Colorado. You know, if, if suddenly there's a family of badgers appear, then, you know, people will sort of descend. And, and I love taking advantage of those kind of rare opportunities that we do have in Colorado. I remember actually in the midst of my treatment, there was a, a family of badgers showed up. And it was a, just an absolute thrill for days. But again, there was another lesson in there. There was a, a, maybe a lineup every day of six cars, photographers, very respectful of the wildlife back on the road, just enjoying this rare natural treat. Then I I went back uh, the following week, no badger, and found out the story was someone had got out their car, walked up, right up to the set with a shorter lens, and just scared the family away. And of course they just move. they're they're scared, but they just move and they're they're out of reach and basically ruined it for everybody else. So so having that respect and just understanding of safe distances for wildlife is, is absolutely paramount, not just for the safety of the animal, But for the enjoyment of people like us,
2: absolutely. So I kind of wanted to touch on your African trip, Mm -hmm. and and ask about it a little bit because, and one of the things that I noted in because you were posting, you know, fairly often some of those images as you got back, and one of the things that I noted was just number one, I think a person that starts in landscape or even starts in the studio has a little bit of an advantage in reading light and, and composition. And then, um, also the diversity of your background. And I didn't really realize that until we were just talking a little bit ago, but looking back through some of those images, you can see where that was advantageous when you were there because you captured some things in different ways that I'm not sure just everybody would have seen. Uh, there's one image that it's not even, it's a, a skull in the water and uh, just the level and the the composition as well as, you know, the point of view that you took that image from. uh, That's one of the better wildlife quote unquote images that I've seen. It's a fantastic black and white. So just talk about that a little bit. How, how advantageous is that diversity of background when you're in a situation like that, where, you know, you only have this, this number of days and that's it.
0: Yeah. Now, I, I, again, a great question, and and I'm actually very appreciative that you picked out that shot because of all the shots that I took on safari, it's probably the one where I had the most exclusivity, and and I'll, I'll kind of say a little bit more than that uh, about that. So when when you go on safari, as you know, you have a, a more limited field of view than you would ordinarily because you're you're in a truck, you know, and and I was in a truck with four. Uh, photographers including me so, so, so three others and, and you're clearly being exposed to the same wildlife and then if, if there are opportunities for creativity you've got lens difference you've got compositional difference but at the end of the day you've got that, that same narrow field of view there was one day the truck got stuck in the mud and, and it was the only time in the whole trip we, we basically had to get out of the truck And and I just scanned the area and saw this skull just over a little hill. And uh, after negotiating my permission to walk to the skull without fear of being attacked, (laughs) I grabbed that skull and and actually shot it out of water first. And and then I saw the little river. And again, this sounds silly back in Colorado, but you're basically tossing rocks in the water to make sure there's not a crocodile there. And, and And then placing the skull in the water. And then I was down at water level shooting it. But I already had the image in my mind before I shot it. So it it was something that I wanted to do. And one of the reasons I love it is it's probably the only shot that is purely mine, if if that makes sense. I was the only person that had the opportunity to take that shot. So it becomes, it just gains an extra level of of uniqueness and and satisfaction, I suppose, that I was able to truly create that scene rather rather than have it presented in front of me.
2: Yeah, that's a phenomenal shot. And it's one of those that, you know, you're, you scroll, Mark talks about this all the time. You're scrolling through those Instagram feeds much faster than you should. And that was one, I actually went past it, and then I was like, whoa, hang on a second. And I had to go back and, and look at it again. It's a phenomenal shot, and I would encourage everybody to, to go to your feed and, and check that out. And, and the whole trip was great, but that one was, in my opinion, it, it took the cake.
0: Yeah, the, the the dilemma I have now is whether a buffalo skull is eligible for a wildlife competition.
2: <laughs> well, actually, there was a winner last year that uh, won with a, a deceased animal as well. Okay. I think I think it is.
0: Okay, uh, I could take a punt anyway. See so how it goes.
3: Sure. I it would it say there. it's a v- eligible. Thank you. I voted in. <laughs> I
0: will write that my
1: <laughs> so we'll put the link in our show notes on our website, but your Instagram handle, I just want to ask where the name came from. I know Wilson makes sense being your last name, but A-X-P-E.
0: It, it will make perfect sense in a second. So my name is Wilson. <laughs> my wife's surname is Axby. It's as simple uh-huh. as that. Very good. Okay. Uh, when we married... Um, it's my wife's from Bilbao in Northern Spain and, um, in Spain, they don't automatically take their husband's name in marriage. So we decided to put our names together for our children. So all our two children, Andrew and Alba, their surname is Wilson Axby. Nice. And I guess it's kind of you know, slightly sentimental in my part that it would be called Wilson Axby, but there's also a practical logic. So Scott Wilson is a rather common name. And if you type it into Google, I might be page 70 if I'm lucky. I guarantee there are no other Wilson Axbeys in the world at the moment. Other <laughs> kids are starting, their, their track performance is such that they're starting to creep above me in, in the Google searches. But for the moment, it's my property.
1: <laughs> well, that's well thought out. Hopefully makes that makes sense. sense. Yeah. Yes, totally. Makes a lot of sense.
3: So what's cool. your next endeavor? You said you're going to Costa Rica. That's in August. What between now and then, what are you doing?
0: So I, genuinely, I was talking about that buzz about hummingbirds. So it's, I just I want to really I've got uh, three of the four species in Colorado. I don't have a great photo of a Rufus hummingbird. So over the next month, I would like to nail uh, a Rufus hummingbird. Oh, I've I know where
2: seen- you can get a bunch of those. Just while you're having lunch. All we have is
0: Rufus. Okay, well, it's the only one I don't have. I've got the the you right. know the purple throated yeah. one. I managed to get that, and that's the rare one. but um,
2: Maybe throw,
0: get, it. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then I've seen some great uh, moose shots. So I think sort of a a young moose calf uh, would be a good one. I promised to take a couple of friends up to Northwest Colorado to see the wild mustangs. So I'm looking forward to uh, yeah. doing that uh, through July. Honestly, I've still got an absolute ton of images to process. Uh, from the safari in Africa. I've I've kind of done the, the big mammals and I've now got to start on uh, some of our feathered friends uh, from that trip. And away from wildlife, it's in the middle of track season as well. So my son's doing very well in uh, state and regional uh, competitions at the moment. So we're off to Arizona next week to follow that team as well. So one of the things I don't publish, either on Facebook or Instagram, is all the, the sports photography that I do I publish my son, but I don't think it's my right, if you like, to publish images of other people's children. But I basically contribute all of those photos to the sports teams that they're in as well. So that's quite a lot lot of time that you don't see behind the scenes.
3: Well, there's got to be a lot of appreciative parents, for sure, of having you there capturing all that stuff.
0: Yeah, and I've got to be honest, I get such a buzz. And some of these kids now are are genuine, you know, top-class athletes of the future. There's one of Andrew's Track mates, he's only 15 years old and he's doing sub 11 seconds in 100 meters. So, so that guy's sort of going national. So, there's part of me is saying, I'm probably catching, you know, an Olympic star of the future at, at a very, very young age. And that's not meant to sound self serving, it's not, but it's an absolute no, thrill sure. to be able to catch these uh, kids at young age. So, last we'll have
3: ESPN giving you a call in about five years saying, Hey, can we get a picture of so and so?
0: Yeah, so that last. Uh, at the end of the track season, I gave every kid a 13 by 19 black and white print of maybe the best shot of them in action. And just to see the reaction in their faces when they see themselves in print. And yeah, I know it's the Instagram age, but even these kids are going, oh, to actually see themselves on paper. And that's all the reward I need is just to see their faces. It's wonderful. Yeah.
2: It's that's fun. It's fun to be able to do that. And, you know, every mom has a camera, but... Uh, it's nice for them to see, a see something professional like yours. I, I know having a, having a kid that's been there, it's, it's fun for them. So you moved to Colorado for a job, correct? Yeah. So when do you find time to go to work? That's what I want to know. Just listening to your schedule here.
0: So you, you use time. So yeah. So I mean, I, I kind of consider myself, you know, divided into three. So the, the most important is being a, a husband and father. So actually, you know, family family time is primary. Uh, you know, you, you do you do the regular nine to five. I've got to be honest, I don't have a regular nine to five job. So I'm I'm often working uh, overtime between times, and and then most of the weekend is dedicated um, to photography. I think going back to part one, I'm lucky that a lot of that overlaps with family time. So it's actually a pleasure. And mm-hmm. then just making time for, for wildlife and, and landscape. I think the thing that suffers is sleep. Uh, and, and when yeah. I was only a landscape photographer, I would sleep during the day. But now that I'm a wildlife and landscape photographer, that's all been screwed up completely because that's, you know, sleeping <laughs> time. So, so I think that the casualty is, is not the job, it, it's actually the, the sleep time. Um, The other component I'd put onto that is volunteering. So I now do a lot to contribute to the colorectal cancer community within Colorado. So just joined their national board, as I said, just this week. So that will take up more time and maybe means a little bit less photography. Uh, I sit on the Colorado Colorectal Cancer Task Force, which is looking at how we improve access to screening within Colorado and try and get the age of screening down from 50 to 45, which has already been recommended, but not activated. So it's actually turning these things into something that's actually actionable. And then there's just a number of ongoing fundraising events where I always like to sort of show up and, and help help out. So so I guess that's a kind of fourth leg in that. But I think after you've been through a battle like I have, you just want to live life to its absolute full. So I am not complaining about being tired or not having enough time for anything, so.
2: Absolutely, and yeah. You're quite a guy. You've got a lot on your plate, but yeah, to see you do it with the attitude and carry the attitude that you do and the perspective that you do, I think that's, you know, that perspective comes from experience, obviously. But it's it's great that you're able to to share that with others.
0: No, I appreciate those kind words. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I think we all need
1: reminding of it now and then, if not frequently. You know, there are so many people that are struggling with things in their lives and you know, if we're healthy, that's number one, and we have to be so grateful for that. And what we can do, you know, the ability that we have to get into wilderness and and have that soulful experience is is a blessing,
0: right? Yeah. Uh, de- that's definitely definitely never take it for granted. And I know a lot of people talk about the perspective change that cancer gives you, and and of course it does. I really get that, but it has introduce me to the most amazing bunch of people as well, whether that's the medical community or the survivor community or the charity community. And, and I wouldn't ever say, I don't want to know those people. Obviously I w- wish I hadn't had cancer, but the friendships and the relationships that I've built as a consequence are just irreplaceable. So, it's a, so it has been a very strange thing to say, but a strange gift.
1: Well, it's mm-hmm. that support network, right? I think yeah. that's essential you know the positive outlook the activity like photography in this case that motivates and gives a purpose to give back and then the support network around you is 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 a big deal with a very significant contributor to the fight and getting yeah. through absolutely so we'll put a link but how do can we get a link for the book to put on the website or how do people order your book
0: Yeah, so it's actually available in two places. The best place, really, is in the simplest place, would be go to the Colorectal Cancer Alliance website. They have a shop, and the book is on there, available for sale. It's called Through the Window. You can also go onto my website, which is wilsonaxby.com, and there's a drop-down menu there for the shop. You can buy the book that goes straight back to the Colorectal Cancer Alliance, but also any print sales as well. Also go to one of two charities so horse sales all go back to a charity that looks after the well-being of horses in colorado and then everything else goes back to the colorectal cancer alliance so it's a great way to give back and get some art for your wall at the same time i think so
2: excellent
1: okay i you know it's not photography related but there might be a small portion of our listening audience and i don't know if you want to say this or not or as far as the figures go, I'm going to be that guy that's just going to whisper in your ear and ask as far as screening goes, obviously, you know, it's desired at 45. How frequently if somebody is screened at 45 or at 50 for that matter, is it wise to do so? I guess it depends if anything's discovered or if anything of concern, what's, what's the best practice?
0: So um, there's best practice and then there's insured practice, if if that makes sense. So best practice recommendation now is that anybody should be screened for colorectal cancer above the age of 45. Now, A a standard colonoscopy costs about $1,200, $1,300. So if your insurance company isn't covering that, there are other means as well. You can get a fit test for, I think, $30 to $40 and, and run that yourself. So... Even if insurance isn't covering you at 45, I would recommend that you find a cheaper way. Everybody should be covered 50 plus at a minimum for a colonoscopy through through their insurer. And and everybody should take advantage of that. The exceptions are if you have symptoms or family history, then then you need to go earlier. So any age screening should be available if you have symptoms. They include a, a, a change in bowel habits or blood in your stool, for example. If you have family history, so in my case, my mother died at 59, but she was diagnosed at 55. So I should have screening 10 years younger than her diagnosis. So in my case, 45. So if, so if you have family history, and the critical message here is, know your family history. You know, even if it means sitting your grandparents down and just interviewing them about, about the diseases that are in your family, it, it's, it's beholden on all of us to know. And yet, so many of us kind of walk around in in fear and ignorance. And and trust me, the fear the fear that you have post diagnosis is worse than any fear you'll ever have anticipating things. So, so right. so get yourself screened. So, I you do both. that
3: little thing that they send in the mail every year the the box or I don't know, they advertise it on TV all the time. It's just something that you can do at home and send in. Yeah. How? How good is that test? Because I am that guy that it's like, I don't have a day to go in and do the the full-on test. And, you know, it's like they knock you out, you you know. But, like you say, that's a small price to pay. Mm -hmm. But yet I still find myself, okay, I'm just going to do this box test that my health insurance company sends me this kit. Is that decent? Or would you say, no, you're over 50, you you still need to go get the real deal done?
0: Let me tell you a horror story, okay? So I was, uh, I told you the maths that I should have been checked at 45. In Britain, unless you have two dead relatives, you are not eligible for a colonoscopy. So I was given what's called a faecal occult test, which is the one you've been sent in the mail, at the age of 45, and it came back negative. Three years later, I'm diagnosed stage four, When I come round from my colonoscopy, the colonoscopy said, you've had this disease for at least five years, probably ten. So you can do the maths. It clearly predates the negative test. Now, my message there is that I recommend colonoscopies if they're available. Okay, What my doctor should have said to me is, that test has come back negative. Now you should do it every year until you're eligible because apparently the effectiveness gets better every year. I wasn't given that advice, and I was just delighted that you know I was negative and could carry on and not worry about getting the same disease that, that killed my mother. So take advantage of the best test available to you, but make sure that it's repeated and consistent and keep to having that dialogue with, with your, your medical advisors. So um, I, I was very unlucky, but I now know so many people that have been diagnosed under 50 with a serious stage cancer after an initial misdiagnosis. So I'm probably muddling messages a little bit here. You do that test that's been sent through the mail, but but don't completely rely on it.
3: And then with the real test where you actually go into the the medical office, is that something you would say do every year? Or is that if you get negative, can you do like every two years? Or what is that frequency?
0: Even after I've been stage four, I have, I have my last colonoscopy was clean and they told me I don't need to come back for two years. Okay. Okay. So, so, you know, it's such a slow growing disease. I've been unlucky that my disease has spread elsewhere. So mine's more likely to come back in the liver or the brain than it is in the colon. But I still need to be tested. But even as a stage four survivor, they're saying we can now stretch that, that testing of your colon out. Everything else I'll still be tested every three months. But that, gotcha. that particular um, technique is is uh, delayed. So
2: that well, may be the best your... pro tip we've we've had on the show.
3: Exactly. <laughs> I think it's one of those deals where you just like, you know, you just don't want to waste it. I, it's, I don't say waste the time, but take the time to go do it, and you just got to do it. Yeah. Do it.
0: And what I, what I hate are the stories about the stigma. It, it's such a. The worst bit of it is the is the. Uh, fluid you have to drink beforehand but once you've got through that it's a breeze and you're you're half asleep or fully asleep while the process is ongoing and you wake up and you're given your results that it's not a difficult uh, process to go through so if if people can get over that stigma and just see it as just part of a necessary routine i think that would help them
1: do it
2: <laughs> <laughs> just do it
0: And
1: <laughs> on, on a lighter note i don't know if this is too much of a, of a subject swing pause pause okay. Okay. pause <laughs> you have been to Dragonstone
0: I have. I saw that online <laughs> what was it like it was um no I've got to be honest I'm not a Game of Thrones um regular okay okay
3: all
1: right
0: I have been to northern uh, Spain many many years you know since since I met my wife that's the same coast that, that she's from The place where Dragonstone is, is a place called Gath de Lugache. It's difficult to say, but I've mastered it over all these years. Thanks for doing that, wrote it down. (laughs) Stunning landscape venue. You have to descend a sort of near vertical path and you're, you're sort of descend these many hundreds of steps. What you find at the top of the steps though, resembles nothing like Dragonstone. It's this beautiful little hermitage And just the genius that is these graphic uh, guys, they've basically created this absolutely humongous um, sort of medieval fortress on top of this, uh, on top of this, what looks like a volcanic plug, but it's actually a little island. So it's a tremendous location. The difficulty I have is that I used to sort of saunter down by myself, come up in the dark, you didn't see any people. There's now a line of cars every single time you go, people just wanting to pay homage uh, to Game of Thrones, so <laughs> partly as a as a, a compensation for everything that I've been through in the last few years, we hired a helicopter uh, last time and just got above all the crowds and so I have the most amazing aerial views of the Dragonstone site rather than Dragonstone itself and that was just a, such a thrilling experience to to get to get that,
3: get that, get those shots so
1: beautiful light so that's what I saw on Instagram today was through the helicopter. Point yeah. of view. Yeah, yeah, very good.
3: Yeah. I was thinking a drone for sure, but that helicopter makes sense.
0: It's the most, even without the the castle, it's the most beautiful, picturesque scene along one of the most amazing coasts you'll ever see. It, to me, it's it's like Oregon on steroids. It's just a a brilliant venue.
1: Well, I definitely enjoyed seeing your work on Instagram, and you are well traveled. And I want to thank you for sharing your story with us. It's very inspirational and heartfelt and I, we wish you absolutely nothing but the best and it's a it's a privilege and pleasure to have met you and to get to know you and i'll definitely be following you and and your work along the way
0: i've loved the conversation it's, it's it's a rare treat to just speak to you know sit down as you say and chat uh, i sort of three kind of like like-minded guys so i think i think the only thing we're missing is doing it in real life the, the virtual experience has been great but it would be nice to say hello in person
3: I will see you on the road somewhere, I'm sure, in Colorado. So I will definitely reach out. We really appreciate your time. and It would be awesome to do this in person somewhere down the road when we we do find you out there. Because Mark shows up here in Colorado at least once a year, and Ron is just a stone's throw away. So we can uh, set that up here this fall, maybe. Great.
1: I want to thank Scott Wilson for being on our podcast today. I hope that you've enjoyed hearing about his talented and varied photography, and most importantly, not to take any day for granted. You can find more of our team's work on Instagram, on Facebook, on YouTube, and on our website at wildandexposed.com. And no matter which platform you're listening to us on, make sure to hit that subscribe or follow, give us a five-star review or the thumbs up, because those help us to do what we love to do and to bring you this podcast on a regular basis and hit that bell on YouTube so you're notified when we post new videos for your viewing enjoyment. I want to take a moment and thank all of you who have given us shout outs on social media. It's always appreciated. Your comments, your questions, keep them coming and we'll answer them and feature some on the podcast coming up as well. And of course, I cannot sign off without thanking our producer, Missy McKenzie, for all her hard work that she does behind the scenes to create this podcast for your enjoyment. Until next time, you've been listening to Wild and Exposed Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.